0: Salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things '90s Canada. This episode is the conclusion of a chat I had with Trevor Hurst, a Vancouver, British Columbians, Econoline Crush. Now, uh, in between Affliction and uh, W, you know, you guys uh, went through some lineup changes. You guys have had a number of incarnations of the band over the years. I'm curious, how did the lineup changes between Affliction and W No affect the writing process of W No?
1: We became a lot better as a as a writing as a band and also like just player wise. Um, yeah, a lot of the changes, you know, would be we just had a high standard for what we expected live, uh, and what we expected um you know for behavior wise and addictions and all that kind of stuff we just wanted everybody to be you know professional and get it done and so sometimes things just didn't work out where people couldn't get it together or you know for whatever reason wanted to do something else and yeah i mean we took a lot of heat for a long time about all of our different incarnations but the reality is is that the band like some bands are about the personalities of the thing ours is more kind of about the concept of the band which is Hmm. still trying to be innovative still trying to uh blur boundaries and merge styles and do things that uh, that are innovative and different and and it's been tough of late i gotta say like trying to maintain that that innovation has been has been difficult because in some ways the music industry has caught up and now we're looking at different ways to try and, you know, just keep it fresh and keep ourselves excited about the music that we're making because it's, it it has become sort of a norm. Whereas when we started, we, there was nobody really doing what we were doing.
0: With that, with those new songs for Devil, you know, you also got, you know, speaking of innovation, I should say, um, you got the great Sylvia Massey to produce that record. Who, if people don't know the name off the hop, she produced Tool and Johnny Cash and Red Hot Chili Peppers and System of a Down and a countless, countless.
1: I I thought, you know, when we when we 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 had I had interviewed uh, a number of producers, right? And and but one of the things that I've always been um, conscious of or aware of, or was the the role of of people that are not represented in the music industry and how to get them represented so the fact that she was a woman was really really a big deal to me like um i wanted to work with a female producer i wanted to see what that would be like um and i also wanted to sort of champion um, you know, like I said, people that were less visible in the music industry, it seemed like it was predominantly white males. And it was kind of like, wow, that's not what the world looks like. So maybe. <laughs> yeah. Plus, she was, as a personality, I just I got along with her right away. Um, she has a really unique voice. She has a really unique way of, of, of um, communicating with the artist. And, and she just, we just clicked immediately and oh. it just felt so good to work with her and i mean she's like you you just listed off all these things that she'd done but she started um you know working with prince that's kind of the funky one because she was working at larabee north and they had or Larrabee South—I forget which one of the Larrabee studios—and Prince had come in, and 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 she was just as a runner then,
2: huh. and
1: she, she endeared herself to him so much that he ended up bringing her to Paisley Park, and uh, the guy, uh, one of the static who did some programming on Devil, you know, um, he was also at Paisley Park with Sylvia, so the two huh. of them, uh, they would uh, they they would sit in a room, and Prince would Prince would come in. And on one on the left hand, he would play the drums like a drum kit, like with his left hand and, <laughs> and with his right hand, he would play a bass line wow. and he would play and then he would write down, you know, I want four bars of of this progression, huh. eight bars of this progression, 32 of this progression, then go back to four, eight and 32. And then he would go down the hallway. So Sylvia would put that <laughs> all together and he would have like four or five of these rooms going and have four or five songs going all day long. Amazing. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So she, and she also worked as Rick Rubin's assistant. Wow. <laughs> and, then, and then, okay, so then, and then the guy, so there was a guy sleeping on the couch at the studio. So we, we picked uh, Sound City, which, to record The Devil You Know, and Sound City was run by a woman from Toronto, Siobhan, and that is the studio in the movie Dirk Diggler or whatever, uh, Boogie Nights, uh, huh. where he's, you know, he's ch- telling the guy, look, man, I can't get you any money till you give me my master. And he goes, I can't give you my master till you give me money. You know, that theme that they have. Yeah. And like, and I've stood in that exact spot, you know, talking to Lenny Kravitz, like just right really? in very spot, right? <laughs> But that was the studio that we wanted, that we were in. And uh, Sound City was just an amazing place to record. And, and so we, we got in there and spent three weeks. And like Lenny Kravitz was in the next room working with Chicago. Huh. And oh, it was just amazing.
0: After the end of uh, the recording of Devil, you know, did you see a difference now having a woman at the helm and having Sonny with that pedigree? Did you see her influence on the songs?
1: Oh, huge, 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 huge. Like, huge. Like, and what was cool, too, was the the ability to, like, there's a lot of emotion when you're making a record of that level. Like, when you're at this point where you know it's going to be heard around the world, hopefully, and and it's going to last forever. You know, so there's, like, Mm -hmm. people's emotions are, or high and having somebody like Sylvia in there, you know, come on guys, you know, this is going (laughs) to rock, you know, and just telling you like it is you, you, uh, I don't know. We felt safe. We felt like we were in capable hands. And I think that once we left that session, we felt like we could do anything. I know. I felt like she kept telling me the whole time. And I, like we were down there for so long, um you know you're a rock star come on (laughs) you know and like up until that point i was like well i'm okay but she was like nope (laughs) you're a rock star and it just really helped you know it it bolstered our confidence and we felt like like we were we were really doing it you know this is the (laughs) this is the deal man we're in the game and she took us to student like she took me everywhere like when before the band got down i remember i went to uh oh I'm going to forget the name of the studio grandmaster funk and the huh. Foo Fighters were recording it. Maybe their second album or would it be their first album, but I could hear Dave Grohl singing in there. Huh. But the reason she took me there was not just the Foo Fighters. Cause she had in that parking garage they did in undertow. They shot Billy Preston's piano with shotguns and recorded it. Wow. And then upstairs, the bathroom had all red, uh, like, um, Fixtures. So it's a red tub, a red toilet, a red sink. And she's like, they shoot porno in here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, ooh, let's wash our hands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, she took me to to meet Jack Joseph Puig at Ocean Way and uh, Matt Wallace and his wife and like oh we went to every studio like she was just like you gotta meet these guys oh and Joe Barisi, evil Joe Barisi was down the hall when we were uh, working in there as well so yeah like there was a lot of great uh, people that we met through her and and yeah it was fun oh I know what I want to tell you, sorry so then he, when we were working at Sound City there was a guy sleeping on the couch uh, there and he was in a band uh, Rhino Bucket and, and he said, hey, man, you guys, like, you got some pretty cool guitars. Don't get me wrong, but I got some neat guitars you want to borrow. We are like, OK. So he brought down these wicked Gretches and stuff. And anyway, he's, his name was Greg Fiddleman. And he just did the last Slayer record. Oh, wow. But he was sleeping on the floor, man. (laughs) So he was just starting out. And we were so poor, he had this slickster hairdo. So when we finished the record, we wanted to get him a gift, but we didn't have any money. We all pitched in and bought him some Brill Cream.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. One more uh, question about the recording of that album, more the writing of it, I should say. But uh, Sparkle and Shine, which uh, was actually written about Shannon Hoon, yeah. You know, a lot of times the music comes first and then the lyrics come second. Um, if it was the case this time, what was it about the music of Sparkling Shine that led you to write about Shannon Who?
1: Well, it was actually like I had been sitting with that, I had a melody in my head of but I didn't know what words to go with the melody. And I was working on the song. I'm pretty sure it was winter months, it was rainy, kind of depressing. And he had just got out of rehab and was coming back into the band. They had had the big hit with the B song or whatever. And so this other record comes out, he gets out of rehab, fresh baby daughter, and they put him out in the road and he wasn't ready to be out in the road and ends up subsequently that he dies of a drug overdose on the bus. You know, he comes home and uh, you know what happens with, with heroin or benzos you, you, your brain forgets to breathe so you just stop breathing mm. and um, it bothered me because it was like you know we are pretty fragile guys when it as artists and we'll say yes to anything because we love to perform but sometimes the, the the icky feelings of not being good enough or whatever are pretty insurmountable so you decide to numb yourself out after shows and bad things happen and I just thought, that for him to have to go up and sparkle and shine for everybody and be this guy when he wasn't ready was really unfair. And so I saw the article in spin that came out that month or whatever. I read it. I read, I did not know that he had had a, just had a baby girl and it just struck me so hard. And Hmm. I, I just, I go, man, all that just to go out there and what sparkle and shine. And then that was like, Oh, that sounds neat. And I wrote that down and then i and then i went and re- kind of thought about my own experience and said you know sometimes i feel i'm going under you don't feel <laughs> nothing at all give me hope give me something to believe in cuz this jaded heart is never enough interesting meet him briefly at the commodore um they were on tour with the tea party at the time and then uh, uh, they were both emi artists so we went down to the show and briefly uh, uh just said hello but unfortunately no i didn't have a, a friendship with with him at all or anything but again like you kind of feel this camaraderie with your label mates and stuff because they end up dealing with the same people that you deal with and some of them are pretty uh unique so whenever you meet the bands you go hey how about that guy and they're like man right
0: (laughs) (laughs) we talked about the art direction for affliction and the art direction for devil you know took quite a turn because the purge and affliction is pretty dark in my estimation yeah the artwork and then um devil you know at least the canadian release full band shot you know brighter colors was that something conscious that you decided or something the label was trying to uh suggest to you guys
1: the label was suggesting it and and our management at the time hmm. and um plus the record had you know arguably a commercial sound um mm-hmm. and they wanted to see if they could move it in that direction and as as we did as well like we were like um how do we get his it's weird because as a band you'd think that you know it was all about being popular for me it was just how many people can we get our message to you know mm-hmm. and maybe this is a way we could get the message out uh to a lot more people was was to kind of maybe be more accessible plus we thought it was pretty fun at the time to be wearing suits when we were such um dirtbags
0: (laughs) (laughs) in the alternate cover for the states uh what reasoning did they give you guys for that
1: it's the same thing as that stupid story about the name of the band. It's like, we can't sell it like this. You know, and then they just, away they go. They were so, they were like the the most, at the beginning, it was so crazy dealing with them because they were so aggressive. But then we, you know, we ended up matching their aggression and, and carrying on down the path. But yeah, at the beginning, it was like we just got bowled over by the Americans, it seemed.
0: <laughs> now, uh, we haven't talked about uh, music videos yet, or much music, The Impact, now, the videos for the singles for off, "You Know All That You Are and Sparkle and Shine and on and on, lots of airplay uh, on Much Music. Did you see um, a difference now, knowing that you're getting that much oh, yeah. in the rotation?
1: Oh, yeah. Like Much Music, that was crazy. Because, you know, before Much Music, you're just kind of like sort of an unknown f- thing. After Much Music, going out, going to concerts, going to hockey games, doing whatever, that became a real hassle because like huh. people knew who you were now and uh which was awesome like you like people to know your band but it was just a whole different thing you know, like now you had to deal with actual fame <laughs> and that was like a, a strange thing when you never had that before so yeah much music at that time they were responsible you know for breaking all these bands and, and making those edge fests and all those huge festivals possible
0: and how much um being a creative guy that you are how much impact and influence did you have in the direction of the music videos
1: we, we got to say, we got a lot of uh, influence. Yeah. Like we, we were given like say three or four different directors and they would come up with concepts, read the concepts and then meet with them. And yeah, the, the best thing though was the last, one of the last videos that, you know, big budget videos really besides make it right, I guess uh, you don't know what it's like when we did that video. Um, I, I, Wanted again, like something that's going to be different than everybody else. And there was all the usual suspects, and at the bottom of the list, there was a guy named Noble Jones, and he had done the last thing he had done was Mary J. Blige. And uh, I didn't even look at the videos or anything; I just looked at his name, and I go, "Who's this, Noble Jones?" Ah, he's a, a hip hop guy. There's Mary J. Blige. I, I, don't know. I go, "Let's hire him." Really? I go, "Yeah." Come on, the guy's name's Noble. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> he always legit. Man. He can't walk around noble.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not
0: be, not be legit. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. You've actually mentioned Edgefest. Uh. Can you talk a little bit about being uh, getting approached to do the touring festival? The kind of was there a pitch that, uh, or was it something your label just put you guys on? And then once you were on it, um. Kind of describe what it's like being a touring band in that kind of environment with so many acts, international acts, not just Canadian, but you know, European, American.
1: It's. It was. Um. If you think about it, you know, um, and we had the same experience with radio shows in the States, similar kind of vibe going on. But, yeah, we got told that we weren't really like at that point of our career was it was more about like it was just like, yeah, you're going to do Edge Fest, you know, (laughs) you don't really have a choice. (laughs) It's going to be really cool. And this is what it is. And and we were like, whoa. And yeah, like, I mean, it was. To me, I always said like those uh, similar thing in the states with radio shows. It's like summer camp for bands. You go up, you rip out 30 minutes of your best stuff. It's catered, so you get to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, (laughs) You're you're hanging out, having like you know chats with Dave Grohl and and uh, dude from creed or whatever bands that you ran into and other canadian bands and you know i mother earth and ripping around and so it was it was yeah it was like summer camp you know just going from one thing to another and just like having these activities and things you're doing and it was fantastic and and we really, you know, you're you're playing with Green Day, you're playing with all these bands that are on the radio. And then we ended up going, you know, the States, same thing, they call them radio shows, whatever. There's just like a radio station puts on like an Edge Fest. And, and Edge Fest was, you know, 102 point whatever the Edge in Toronto. It was their thing. So this was the similar things in the States. So you, you, we'd have them every day. And I just I couldn't believe it. I, I, I always wanted to pinch myself because... It was just amazing. Like think about it. Like every band that you liked that was currently on the radio you could go watch side stage, you know.
0: As a fan, it was,
1: oh, it was heaven. I mean it was I remember
0: heaven. I went yeah. to each one I could, you know.
1: Yeah. Like I can remember going to Point Fest in um St. Louis and it was when uh Freshanti got back with the the chili peppers. Oh no way. And there was two people <laughs> this was so great. So the, the 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 there's all these bands and I'm talking there's a lot of bands, a who's who of rock and roll, but the station manager in for the point in St. Louis liked our band. And she liked me. And she was like <laughs> she was like my husband and I are gonna go up there. She goes, You can come with me and Daniel from um Silver Chair.
0: Oh Daniel Johns, yeah. Yeah,
1: he's gonna be there with his bodyguard as well. <laughs> and there'll just be the five of us uh side stage on beside on fleas beside fleas amp if you're huh. into it it's like yes i'm into it <laughs> and she's like and uh so as we're walking she goes oh one other thing so we're just about to the stage she goes don't look at daniel he doesn't like it if people look at him and like huh. it'll freak him out and i'm like okay i'm a guy from the prairies um what kind of bullshit is that
2: <laughs> yeah exactly.
1: Yeah, like, what are you, what are you, what's wrong with you? So we get up on the side of the stage, and, and I'm, we're literally like, I can stick my hand out and touch the Ampeg. We're that right there, like right huh. there. And we're kneeled down. We're kind of sitting on this lighting case or whatever. And Daniel's just like about six feet away. And when the woman that's running the station and her husband are looking the other direction, I lean over and I look at Daniel. And I go, hey, man, how's it going? <laughs> and he books it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he books it. So no way. He, he, he didn't even stay for the show. Wow. Uh, I feel bad. Not really though. Come on. You That's be able, crazy. You're in the music biz. You got to be able to say hi. So anyway, he took off. So then it was just the three of us sitting there, and it was an amazing show. The best part of that show was that, you know, besides John Shanti showing back up, but Flea, Chad, and John are up there playing, and and uh, Anthony hasn't come out yet, and so they're just kind of jamming, and then Anthony walks out, and he had cut off his hair. This was when he had cut off his hair, and you hear thirty thousand people all simultaneously go. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> it's the craziest sound. <gasps> like they just couldn't believe he cut off his hair, and then they just slammed into some song, and everybody was just raw. Yeah. But we did lots of shows with with like the, the ones that we were on. There was you know there's Green Day and and uh, uh, Collective Soul was on a few or on the first one and, It was just, it was so cool because you would sit and talk with them, you know, bands, different bands. And even the Canadian bands, it was nice to sit and talk with the guys from Sloan and and just like just sharing that experience because it's so uh, few and far between the times that you get to actually share uh, these these things with people that actually have done it as well, you know, like they have lived mm-hmm. through the same thing you have. So you can kind of like say, Hey man, do you remember that club? Oh man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So it was really, that was very humbling and, and wonderful. It was to be able to just, yeah. Talk to those other musicians that you respected, you know?
0: Absolutely. And with that uh, second record now, or with, I guess, the second full length, you guys are now the headliner. So I'm wondering, um, what was it like to to uh, take another band, like a you know quote unquote baby band, with you on the road and kind of show them the ropes and give them the exposure that Sons of Freedom once did for you guys?
1: Oh, it was great! It was it was amazing. I remember we did one tour where they were like, "Okay, you guys finally you can pick the band," and I was like, "Really?" Huh. So I go, "What about uh, Joydrop?"
3: was beautiful like you All oh, the things I would do Those not so blessed will be crying out murder And I just laugh and get away with it too Like you do If I was beautiful like you
1: joy drop to open. And then there was this other thing called BTK. It was like a DJ with some kind of,
0: right. Yeah. BTK peppy rock. Yeah. Hit, big
1: hit yeah, yeah. So we had them at the beginning and, Oh, that was a fun tour, man. That was, a, that was a blast. And that was great too. Like, like because you get bigger, you get opportunities and opening for kiss and opening for different bands like that too was amazing. Like just being able to sit, you know, and catering with Gene Simmons and ask him questions was wild, you know?
0: What kind of questions did you ask him?
1: Oh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, so like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, anything. Like, I, I just, we just like friends. You know, you just sit down and and be having um, dinner. I remember one time it was really strange. I had a sore throat, so I didn't sound check. So the band was up st- on stage sound checking, and I was grabbing some tea, and Gene was sitting in the corner and he motions to come sit down with him. Huh. And so I sit down and, oh, Trevor... he says uh can i give you some advice
0: i said
1: i said sure gene never go solo (laughs) obviously i didn't listen but uh he he said i i told that to john bon jovi he didn't listen i'm telling you that's Uh, awesome yeah it was quite fun he was a really you know he's the band that that organization doc mcgee their manager like i mean you i think the public's perception and gene's public persona is is one thing but he really is a sweetheart of a guy they are a great organization they try to do everything super professional and super up for, like 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 they're just straightforward really amazing uh people like not i don't think what a lot of people would expect uh from that camp but it's it's those old school rock bands, those those guys that have been around forever, there's a reason because they're honest, straight shooters. They tell you, tell it like it is, and and they and they let you, you know, like they. I don't know. We just we just got along with them so well that by the end we had, you know, spotlight stuff and all kinds of stuff and use of all the stage and uh, huh. yeah, really treated like 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 just really treated well.
0: Yeah, it's so great to hear because a lot of times you hear those kind of horror stories where an opening act goes out with uh, you know, a easy Top, a Kiss, uh, you know, na- you name it, some huge band, and they have zero interaction with the actual headliner. So it's kind of cool that you had those moments with Gene and the boys, man. It's deadly.
1: Well, it is kind of funny. I can remember we, we used to have this guy playing bass, uh, Ken Fleming, nicknamed Goonie. <laughs> and, and so we just finished soundcheck, and Goonie's standing there, and he's talking to the, like we're all kind of huddled around the drum kit, and he's like, come on, man, like we've done two shows now, I think yeah two shows and like we're never gonna meet these guys like i think it's weird that we do and it was like it was like just like out of a puff of smoke or something it's all of a sudden hi i'm gene simmons and, and goody turns around he's like ah, hi hi and uh, and we all shake in our heads and then he's like enjoying the tour so far gentlemen you know it was like he'd overheard us or something and we were like yeah it's really great and he goes well i i'll catch your show some night and they just slowly kind of like off. It was just, ah, it was Amazing. great. It was
0: more yeah, really cool. the timing, yeah. unbelievable. What was it like opening for Kiss? I mean, it's not exactly, you know, it's an older demographic compared to what, you know, the much music demographic was at that time. Did uh, Was it hard to kind of win over the audience, or was it uh, uh, seamless?
1: Well, no, it was hard, but it, I gotta tell you, like, so, there was, a, yeah, there was a lot of shows, too. There was a couple shows on that tour that were oddly rushed seating, so, like, when we hit the stage, it's full. And you're standing up there, okay, the lights come up, and there's just like 25 jeans, 14 Pauls, a few uh, aces, (laughs) right? They're all in their costumes, and they're all looking at you like, please make this quick, you're pissing us off, you know? (laughs) So we would play, I I forget what we, sometimes we started, I think, with Sparkle or something, and something else. And then at the time, Home was the single on the radio at the States, in the States. What I would do is I get my local my record rep to get me the uh, the jersey of the arena or the team that we were in the city that we were in like so oh, nice. like yeah. you know so at that time too uh, one time we we were in Cleveland and um, they were going to get the Browns the next year back they hadn't had the football team back so I had this '99 Cleveland Browns jersey and so what I do is just before home I'd run back they'd it'd go dark I'd run back. slip the jersey over whatever i was wearing get over to my mic stand do the jesus christ pose and then they'd click on the follow spot and they would see me in whatever jersey and the place usually (laughs) went nuts
3: yeah
1: and then i would i made a little make a little speech and whatever and we just as it's and and the internet was just starting to kind of explode fam pages were just starting to happen and so word of mouth got around and people started to really dig our band and 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 they said hey this band is is cool they open they do some stuff it is fun and and so we actually won them over pretty good and I can remember too like one night in in Hartford I was sitting in the dressing room by myself I'd just done a radio feed the guys are out getting into trouble and I was sitting in the dressing room by myself and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door I open it and Doc McGee's standing there with a tumbler of scotch in his hand and (laughs) clinking around the ice he looks at me goes and he's just a little guy all tanned eh? and he looks at me and he's like hey Trevor how's it going and I go really good and he goes you know this is the time I usually sit down with the opening band and tell them they need to cut a number or two. And I was like, Oh, 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 oh really? Really? Um, I, I thought it was, Hey, 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 relax, relax. You're doing great kid. Great. You know, you know, John Bon Jovi used to get physically upset when he had to open up for the Scorpions. <laughs> physically
0: upset. <That's> amazing. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, man. Like, there was so much stuff on that tour. That make me, like, I yeah, just funny things that would happen, you know, daily little occurrences. And, yeah, and, and plus, Kiss has so many fans. Like, in Hartford, I remember I was leaving, and for whatever reason, John Lowry, uh, Johnny Five, comes walking in, you know, fishnet, stockings, foaming, <laughs> just to see Gene. I'm here to see Gene. Good to see you, John.
0: Now, touring in the States, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, Um, well, the, being home, being the single in the States. I'm curious now at this point since you guys have elevated your status considerably in Canada with all the, the much music and the edge fests, what is it like now touring in the States? Are you seeing a growth as well down there between affliction and now Devil?
1: Well, yeah, like like we were real like we were headlining some rooms and, and um uh, like there was a station at that point in our career there's a station in um Daytona, Florida I remember. Uh, where we, they were having their 10 year, 10th year anniversary as an alternative station. We were the headliner. Buck Cherry opened for us. You know, hmm. we had uh, we did some shows, other shows in Pensacola, Florida. We did really well in Florida. Where, uh, oh, what was that band? I loved them. Uh, single was called Wax Ecstatic. Not a show. Oh, Sponge. Sponge, yeah, Sponge opened for us. And I remember telling the dude on in the band, like I was like. Uh, the singer, uh, Vinny. Like,
2: yeah,
1: Vinny, yeah. Vinny, dude, like, I, I, this is not right. Like, tomorrow night I'll fix it, I promise. You guys will headline. And he's like, dude, <laughs> no, it's cool. You guys are good. And I'm like, no, it's not cool. Like, you're a way bigger band, man. <laughs> and they were so sweet. Like, we had, you know, and then we did a big tour opening for Stabbing Westward. We did we did a lot of great runs uh, in the States. and But we had, you know, since The Devil You Know, and then going back, like, you know, the following album with brand new history. After that we we haven't gone back, so it's been quite a while, uh, for hmm. touring down there. But initially with that with that label Restless, they really went after it. We did a lot of radio shows and a lot of touring and yeah, we were headlining and and, and getting getting some really good guarantees. It was it was starting to really take off.
0: Amazing. Um one more question about the uh or two more questions really about the nineties and then we'll go fast forward to what you're up to currently and uh, the exciting things that are on the way for and Crush and yourself personally. Um, now, 1999, you appeared on the last 90s edition of Big Shiny Tunes with You Don't Know What It's Like. And I'm curious, at that point, Big Shiny Tunes had been the cultural, you know, you had seen the cultural impact of it. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, being on the third one, I believe it is, were you excited to be part of that now? Because I know people who were on the first one, they just thought it was another compilation. But by that time... People know it's not really just another compilation here in Canada, anyways.
1: Well, we were the first person or team or group or whatever to release a song that had never been released on Big Shiny Tunes. Huh. All the other stuff on there was hits, right? The proven right. hits. So it was a compilation of hits. And I was like, they wanted to put out whatever, and they wanted to put, and I said, no, how about we put out a new song? Yes, and yeah. so yeah so then that that's and that sold was it seven hundred and fifty thousand copies in the country
0: I think. yeah sounds about right yeah it's the same
1: yeah it was a really big version of that one so we have we felt like we had contributed to that in a big way and also you know right around that time you know we were getting a lot of love on chart magazine i think the cover of chart that coincided with that release was uh, the most sold chart magazine
0: is that the one where you're in the hockey jersey with uh, the yeah. with the face yeah that's an awesome photo man. yeah all right and uh one kind of general question about the music industry around the late 90s i'm curious um with brand new history between that and affliction your first full length i'm curious what kind of changes had you seen happen throughout the music industry in canada
1: well i mean it was so crazy how fast th- things moved you know we had hmm. uh we got the deal and there was money and there was staff and there was things flowing around. And then that, the whole download thing started happening. Right. right? And the, the best way that I like to tell it, like how, how did the music industry turn out for you? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, well, we started, I would fly out to Toronto for a meeting and there would be a little man with a hat and a sign that would say Trevor Hurst at the airport. <laughs> and i would get in the back of a really long limo and they would drive me to emi and the emi would have a sign at the door welcome trevor Hurst to emi and you know you'd go in and have your meetings and then you know it was we get into the the devil you know and we're platinum max so you still get the kind of the car treatment there'd be a guy with the sign but it was just a uh a lincoln town car you know <laughs> and then it was like hey man can you keep your keep your uh cab receipt (laughs) (laughs) so that's how i mean it moved fast it it went from 300 people at emi to like 30 to like 15 to like zero you know it was the, the the decline was fast and rapid and what pissed all of us artists off was that we were sitting there watching it going you either embrace this change or get run over and they decided to fight it and they got run over and we could see that there was no way you could beat it. You know, there's no way you could stop this.
0: And uh, what Canadian band that uh, you'd have liked to see continue on that was a victim of that, that change in the music industry? Is there a Canadian band that you really like that uh, fell victim to, you know, a record label merger or an A&R guy leaving or that somehow, you know, broke up before they, you know, really hit their creative peak?
1: Well, I... I think if you look at Sons of Freedom is a great example. I mean, they were, mm. they, were they were signed to uh, Slash in the States, a really super cool indie label. Yeah, and like I mean, all those cool labels kind of didn't know how to work the model, mm. and it and it changed fast. Um, there's so many great Canadian bands, but a lot of times, the things that we think that might have ended the careers are a lot different than what does. You know, true. It's a it's it's a hard business, and in Canada it's particularly hard because the cities are so far apart. The mm-hmm. cost of touring and the cost of being a band is 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 uh, a lot of money. You know, when you look at, we would tour in the states, you drive two hours and you're in a whole different city, whole different yeah. market. You know, we have to drive thirteen hours to the first gig from Vancouver to Calgary, <laughs> you know, or wherever we ended up. Yeah.
0: Amazing. And now, now of course, fast forward twenty some years later, and You're the president of an indie label called the Records.
1: Yeah. So it's a a really interesting trip that has been. Um, We just, we just, we've never quit. We've always been on it and trying to uh, create new music and trying to find a situation that works. And I mean, nobody wanted to sign us in the first place. So now... Uh, you know, all these years later, we don't feel that uncomfortable when we're we're assigned to an indie and, and knew that we that's probably the route we were gonna have to go and, and we were good with it. I got involved with the label this little indie label because I wanted to have some control over our career and we have a like I I took a break and went to back to school and, and I got uh, my degree, a bachelor of science in psychiatric nursing. So I'm a registered <laughs> psychiatric nurse now and wow. During one of my summers off of school and touring with the Conline Crush, I ran in and met a filmmaker named Dave Mansell, who at the time was helping run a club in, um, I believe it's Kingston. No, Kitchener-Waterloo. Kitchener-Waterloo called uh, Maxwell's. And um, so he ended up filming um, me, uh, my story, Uh, because he thought it was pretty wild that here's a singer from a band that was quite popular in the 90s that's now working on a First Nation as their home and community care nurse. So he filmed me for three years. We're just this last night. I had a, a, a Zoom meeting with all these people. We're just getting the financing finished to edit it. It'll have a soundtrack, uh, you know, composed by Conline Crush and that's coming out. And um, so we so when getting back to this thing with the label, I knew that we needed to have a good good sort of infrastructure because I I feel like this movie is really important. Uh, It discusses sort of what it was like. It's kind of twofold, right? It, It discusses the career and the psychology around me being a farm kid from a very small community and getting thrown into the spotlight as a, as a rock guy, and then having to sort of manage the expectations of that with the expectations of just trying to survive. And uh, I had a couple of kids and got divorced and, you know, so you've got to figure out all this, how am I going to look after these kids and how am I going to do that? So I went and go back to school and then I start working with this first nation and, and my mom dies of cancer and everything's just sideways. And, I get healed by these people that I don't, you know, just met and become part of their community. And I, and, I, and it, so it's sort of this thing about managing your expectations is, and what life, like what what, 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 what did I think my life was going to be and what did it turn out to be and how different were those two concepts? And then also just how my interaction and my faith was restored by the Chinookawapka Dakota nation and, to this very day you know i'm still close to a lot of people from that community and we um it just it really helped me kind of see that going forward my gift of music regardless of what if the audience is 10 or ten thousand, is is valid is important and i need to make sure that that we keep going and that uh, our voices are heard
0: well said it's it is a fascinating journey you've been on uh, so i'm real, super excited to see this film i cannot wait hopefully 2021 we'll see a release date
1: yeah i think so i think that 2021 it's going to happen i mean we're we're looking at starting to edit in the right in january cool. and uh and we'll just yeah and it is a, for me it's 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 a passion project because it's something that is dear to my heart um and it was also kind of important too because uh for my kids um well i've lost both my parents now and um When your parents go, a lot of the accomplishments and things sort of fade really quickly from the community's memory, from whatever's memory. And and it's kind of selfish, I suppose, of myself. But I really wanted my kids to have something that they could point to and say, you know, besides the videos and all that stuff in the 90s, something that was, you know, recent that that explained what my philosophy was and what what life was about for me – just sort of as a, I don't know, it just felt important to me. And I really wanted them, like I know that they, 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 obviously I'm instilling my values and everything in them every day. But I wanted this to be just something that they could could have after I was gone. Because I don't have that kind of stuff from my parents. And my mom was very active in the community and did so many great things. And I can go to, to buildings that she helped, you know, sponsor or whatever and, and things like that. But I can't watch her interact with the people that she cared about and the people she was fighting for. And this film gives my family a chance and the fans a chance to see that. So if, you know, long after I'm gone, there's this record of, of, of what was important and what were the values that we were trying to instill. And hopefully, uh, the kids and the future generations carry on. Cause uh, you know, for me personally, I, I find that, you know, the indigenous population of this country is very, very, uh, you know, um, damaged there was a cultural kind of like genocide that was imposed upon them and and it's just not it's not cool and and i feel it that as canadians and as personally myself that i i owe a debt and i'm willing to pay that debt so this is my way of just trying to get the word out that that we have to take a look at this huge ginormous um Untapped resource and beautiful cultural stories and cultural teachings and things that, you know, like I said, the Chinook, Chinook Wapka, the Dakota people's way of dealing with grief and understanding of the creator changed my life prof- profoundly. Oh, wow. So um, I I am looking forward to sharing that message with Canadians and the rest of the world.
0: And the the work entitled Flatlander.
1: That yeah, the Flatlander is the name of the film, and it's yeah, just that's because like at one point Dave was like, man, whenever you get to the prairies, you sure get chippy. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, you know, you kind of like you, you walk a little bit more like a rooster or something. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, well, that's what it means to be a flatlander. It's tough around here. You know, we, we got to stick together. And at the same time, though, you got to show them that you're not going to take any guff.
0: <laughs> 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 Don't take no guff. <laughs> yeah. One more, uh, Little question about that about the uh, the second career you have now. Before we get on to the new Econoline Crush uh, material, but what was it like? Um, you know, either working now as a professional in the in the psychiatric field or as going to school to get that degree. Um, with having this whole career as a rock star in your past, that you know people know about it. To did it ever come up a conversation?
1: Well, it was weird, right? Because I didn't want that to be a problem, so I never <laughs> yeah. brought I never brought it up but it was always people just couldn't figure it out like why like just <laughs> because you 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 behave differently when you've had that kind of a background like you're not afraid to talk in class you're not afraid to ask questions mm-hmm. you're not afraid to stand up in front of the class and do so it was like who? so i remember after about the first year uh, we were going into summer break and everybody was sitting around a table and one of the classmates of mine says what are you going to do this summer and I said I don't know I think we're gonna do a small tour and then I'm gonna do a small tour and be back she goes what you're in the army (laughs) and I said no I'm a musician I have a band she goes you do not (laughs) I go I do she goes what is it I go conline crush she goes never heard of it I go really no she goes nope never heard of it and I plug in my headphones into my thing type in all that you are whatever you don't know what it's like something stick them on her head and I press play spin the video around she watches it, looks at me, looks back at it, pulls the headphones off, goes, "No fucking way!" <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, and and so they came out to the shows, and it was it's strange, and 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 when I would work, you know, I some people, it was like some of the community members didn't figure it out. Still a couple of years in, in Chinooka, huh. Wapka, Dakota Nation, you know, like that I was in this band. Uh, it, it was, it was a door opener actually. And, and I, and I was grateful for it because it was a way that uh, when people would find out that sometimes some people that you never talked to in the community would come up and s- younger kids and say, Hey man, were you in this band? And it was a way to kind awesome. of like uh, a conversa- conversation starter. And yeah, there's something about rock music and music in general that transcends, boundaries
0: you know racial Absolutely. and cultural or whatever yeah so uh we'll start to wearing this down re- for real now um now kind of Lane crush has released two singles in the newest in the latest incarnation uh, a redone version of get out of the way and fight like the devil a new song can you talk a little bit about uh writing and recording during the pandemic and how has that influenced the lyrics that you're writing
1: you know I. Uh, get out of the way was was done just just as it was starting and it was really quick and it was sort of like we didn't know if if the guys that i was partners with this little label they they loved that song and they said like let's redo it as a pandemic song like you know Hmm. um and uh uh, so we were just sure whatever like it was sort of we didn't really think about it as much as probably we should have the next fight like the devil that was when you know i was pushing uh baby carriage around in the summer months june i think uh with uh my little daughter in there and she was teething late at night and i'd be walking around these buildings at the university and stuff and because i live right by it and and i was like man i can't imagine what it must be like when there's those riots and you're just trying to get out of the way of the police or get out of the way of these rubber bullets you don't know are coming from anywhere like it just seemed horrifying and and so i that's what that fight like the devil is about that battle to fight you know for the uh, equality amongst all citizens of the country and not just a select few and and the way that the police interacts with you know first nations in canada for example as compared to you know you look at this there's a disparity in the numbers when you look at who's in prison and who's not and what prisons look pretty brown and that's not the way the society looks and so there's a disproportionate number of people going to jail from minority communities for crimes that they probably shouldn't be going to jail for and you know or economic situations that have led them to these these situations which eventually lead to crime is is you know it just sucks and it has to change and so that's what you know fight like the devil is is about that and just the inequities in society and that we need to kind of and just the imagining of what it would be like to have somebody that's uh in your family that's that's uh protesting and gets caught up in that it would be horrific you know look at all the faces tears in the eyes all the bodies rushing by Hear the voices screaming so hard Desperation as the is come Run, run, run up into the morning There's no safe place, there's no
3: warning Find some cover so you can hide Buildings
1: into the dark. The way around it. The way out. This is a moment. This is a time.
3: We stand together. Oppression denied. Flashbangs exploding. Smoke in the air. Horses rolling. Everywhere. Smoke be Into the night. We stand together. We stand together.
1: so this record is coming out um in the spring hopefully uh we're kind of like i was supposed to be doing some recording next week but this red code red and stuff i can't do too much so we're we're stuck but going forward um you know, we'll get this record out as soon as we can in the spring of next year. There'll be a soundtrack f- that follows that of a material f- for the movie, and then another record to quickly follow that. I'd like oh, wow. to do three just right in a row kind of thing, so that we can, because huh. we have a lot. Like we've over all these years, there's all this material right that's been sitting around, and some new material and some all bits and pieces. And so we really want to get it. We really, really, really want to get it all recorded, and we want to sort of like hit the audience with an abundance of material because it's been such a long time since they've had anything to listen to. And it's, it's, it's bothered us that we haven't been able to do, to deliver. And so now that we can, we kind of want to over deliver and, and give some really great stuff to people and hopefully they enjoy it. Um, we're very, you know, stoked about the, the next few singles that are uh, ready to come out and, and this current one fight like the devil it's, it's, uh, it's fun it's great to have music out there and you know it's uh i guess at the end of the day this is who we are we we've always been musicians and we've always you know um love that that in our lives and and it's great to be back doing it
0: one last question about the past and then we'll let you go for the rest of the day <laughs> um now I have a, uh, a companion playlist to the podcast on Apple and Spotify of all '90s Can Rock. Yeah, and I'm asking all the guests to contribute two singles from the '90s material and one deep cut. So, how would you like a uh, Colline Crush from the '90s to be represented on the playlist?
1: Wow, you know, uh, it's hard. Like, it's hard. I, I think Sparkle and uh, Sparkle and Shine, and you don't know what it's like, are are two great, you know, examples of what we do is, in terms of. Uh, of the blending rock or whatever. And a deep cut I think is affliction off of affliction.
0: Oh, wow. Nice.
1: You know, um, and that was a really big exploration of just what it feels like uh, to be addicted, uh, you know, in that, that whole process of, uh, of surviving that. So yeah, those would be, those would be the tracks that I think would represent us the best.
0: Excellent choices, sir. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been fantastic.
1: Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, hearing it. And yeah, and, and, you know, we can talk again anytime.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook youtube and instagram and lastly if you're looking for music we have an official playlist on apple and spotify currently it's curated by myself the tracks that i've selected but as you heard during today's episode eventually it'll be curated by the guests themselves until next time friends take care